Hi, and welcome to Democracy, the podcast that shines light on some of the darkest challenges facing the fight for democracy around the globe. Democracy will and must prevail. This podcast is brought to you by the Consortium for Elections and Political Process Strengthening, direct from Washington, D.C., with support from our friends at the United States Agency for International Development through the Global Elections and Political Transitions Award. I'm your host, Adrian Ross. Under attack. Today, we're talking about malign influence and disinformation. It's an insidious problem facing democracies everywhere today. But can you identify it? Ahead, we'll hear from one of the most ardent defenders of democracy, the president of the International Republican Institute, Dan Twining. He'll tell us why malign influence and disinformation are among the most damaging threats to democracy today and how you can protect yourself from inadvertently consuming it. But first, the Republic of Armenia. This ancient land suddenly became a hotbed of political and military turbulence last year. More now from our program manager, Alex Lawson. 2020 was a difficult year for many, but for Armenians, the double whammy of the coronavirus pandemic and the resurgence of the war in the Nagorno-Karabakh region caused not only unique hardships for the nation, but a flood of disinformation and never-before-seen proportions. Armenians were anxious for accurate information and were unsure of who or what news could be trusted. But as these two crises raged on, the country's relatively nascent democracy, which declared its independence from the Soviet Union in 1991, hung in the balance. In order to correct a compromised information space, it quickly became clear that government intervention was vital and state institutions needed to be the first source of not only accurate information, but also countering disinformation. Thanks, Alex. James DeWitt and his colleague, Dr. Artek Shakarian, join us now to talk about the disinformation that grew in the midst of Armenia's twin crises. James is the International Republican Institute's resident program director for Armenia. He has been defending democracy for more than 25 years and oversees programs which aim to strengthen strategic communications in government and institutionalize parliamentary oversight. He is no stranger to U.S. politics either, having served as a staffer in both chambers of the U.S. Congress and the Texas legislature. Also here today is Artek Shakirian, who is a native Armenian, Artek, for the last two years, has been IRI's senior program manager in Armenia. Prior to joining IRI, he served as a child protection officer with UNICEF in both Armenia and Sudan. And Artek, I I just have to say you're an accomplished scholar with high education degrees from several well-known international schools, including the Kennedy School at Harvard and Johns Hopkins here in Washington. Thank you so much for being here today, live from Armenia. Armenia really has had a long and complicated history. Before we talk more about disinformation, can you share a little bit about how the country's past may have contributed to this disinformation emergency last year? Yes, sure. Well, if you're talking about Armenia, you're talking about the post-Soviet space. Armenia didn't gain its independence until 1991. And even following that, you don't see a lot of free media uh, developing in the country. This government that came into power through the Velvet Revolution wasn't prepared because just in the past, there just was no need. Basically, the government and the media 
before we're one and the same thing. And that was true during the Soviet era. That, and that's been true really over the past 30 odd years in Armenia. So we, we can't blame the government. They've only been in power for a very short time, but there just wasn't a history of free media in this country. Then we had the twin crises come on last year. And uh, that was a big problem. The government really wasn't prepared. They needed expertise. They needed it quickly. And they needed people that were able to deal effectively with social media, especially. And to be clear of what you're saying here, James, or, or Artak, if, you're, if you'd like to answer, what we were seeing was really an uptick in disinformation and malign influence related to both COVID and the war as it was continuing on. Yes, exactly. But at the same time, uh, I would say that the, the society also has its stake because the society lacks media literacy skills. So with this inflow of, of information, they are not ready to handle. Uh, they trust whatever is coming out from that magic box mm -hmm. and they are not prepared that that magic box may be lying or may be spreading disinformation. So that's why when the pandemic uh, stroke, uh, the society was also uh, watching not only Armenian TV stations, but also the Western ones, the Russian ones, and was getting all those myths about the coronavirus. And it was very hard for the government to deal with that situation. Additionally, when the war started, other foreign actors entered the Armenian media field and started also using this situation and trying to spread disinformation about all other things. So yes, the government was in a really hard situation and even the super professional ones would deal with it with difficulty. So we needed the urge to support the government in the communication efforts. Yes, luckily we had, we had prepared the situation in Armenia and many other countries, especially the developing countries, is that the ministries are working in silos. They don't talk to each other. They don't talk to the constituents. And this creates also the situation of uh, miscommunication that leads also to disinformation. So uh, our idea was to introduce the young researchers and young fellows to the ministries so they try to bring in the fresh blood and bringing the experience and skills of working with social platforms that are taking over the traditional media. So we wanted the government to have the proper representation in the social media and to use the social media in daily communication with the people and also in handling the disinformation, misinformation. So these fellows also worked with each other so they also provided a, a bridge between the ministries and the communication between the ministries. The government was fighting the problems when uh, propelling the reforms. So they were not preparing the ground before introducing the reform. And our fellows that were also doing the on-the-job training to their fellow people in the ministry tried to instill that idea that before introducing the reform, you need to work with the constituents, you need to prepare the media, you need to prepare yourself to do your homework before entering the field. These are people that are very well versed in 
in social media, social media management, countering disinformation. They're also know the old tools, the old fashioned tools are very well versed in the press and communications offices there. It's about the communication skills. It's about the data visualization skills, preparing infographics, preparing short stories out of huge policy document and preparing it simple so that people can read and understand and also communicating with the media. So most of our fellows are used to be the journalists or used to be media anchors. So they know the, the area and they know how to deal with that type of people. So they're bringing this field experience to the cabinets. I think that's really important that you brought that up, Artak, because before we had these government ministries, we had the government very much formed and structured in the old ways and used to the old methods and issuing press releases and things like that. I think what's essential is that these Spark fellows know that there's a lot of noise out there. There's a lot of information out there. It's very hard to get people's attention and attention spans are short. So as Artak rightly pointed out, these Spark fellows help to compress these messages, to get all this data and present them in a way that's digestible, that people, that the public are actually going to see and understand, which is super important. Right. I mean, communication challenges really are something every single government has to deal with. Um, but I have to say, I noticed that all of your fellows are women. Was that something you did intentionally? No. Um, that's where the expertise is here in Armenia. That's where the demand is. We partnered with the various ministries to recruit the Spark Fellows. We wanted to make sure that we were bringing on people that uh, met the needs of the ministries. So there was a huge call, uh, many applications in, and in the end, those selected happened to be, happened to be women. So those, that's who we picked. Well, that's great. I was happy to see that. <laughs> mm -hmm. what, what is the current uh, military and political situation in, in Armenia right now? Sort of what now that the information space has, has been given a leg up, do we do we see a clear skies there? Or what do we expect in the next couple of months? So it uh, remains to be seen if we're out of the woods on COVID in terms of the political situation and the terms and related to the conflict of uh, which happened uh, last fall. That continues. There are still violations of ceasefire agreements. There are shootings uh, on the borders uh, almost every day. It's almost becoming commonplace. Uh, although commonplace, it's still very tense here. I want to add that Spark Pro we understand that Spark program is a Band-Aid solution. It's not something remaining. And with our SEPS partners in Armenia, we do work on, on uh, developing the reforms on communication in public administration that will bring more sustainable solution to the issues. And the successful pilot of Spark also adds weight to these messages. Although I agree with our talk about it being a Band-Aid solution, I think it is the, the genesis of something. We're finishing our first year of this program and basically the first class, the first graduating class, if I, if I, if I may, of this uh, Spark program. So we're going to have an, an alumni network. We hope these people will work with uh, future Spark fellows who are in the process of recruiting now. So this is the start of something. So even though 
we don't want uh, we don't want to be behind this all the time or funding it. This is going to have a life of its own. I feel pretty confident about that. Well, that's a great place to leave things, literally and, and virtually. So okay. thank you so much for both being here. We really appreciate your time. Now we turn to Ukraine, where disinformation and malign influence have infiltrated countless pockets of society. Today, the National Democratic Institute's Deputy Director for Ukraine, Natya Jiki, joins us. Natya is a Georgian local who first started her work as a local staffer in her home country before becoming a third country national for Ukraine in 2015. She's here now to talk about how she and the NDI team were able to combat malign influence and disinformation during three sets of Ukrainian elections during 2019 to 2020. Thank you so much for being here, Natya. Thank you for having me. I look forward to the conversation. I do too. Malign influence and disinformation are a really common problem in Ukraine. What can you tell us about this? To illustrate the scale of the challenge facing the country, I will cite a few findings from NDI's public opinion research. According to our 2020 online survey, 87% of Ukrainians think that Russian disinformation or propaganda is a big threat or some threats to their way of life. That is a very, very high number. In addition, the vast majority of Ukrainians, uh, that is 79%, recognize that disinformation and propaganda is being spread in Ukraine. Also, a very high number indicating a high level of awareness of the problem in the country. So in this context, uh, with USAID support for all three elections, we carried out election um, observation missions that included um, long-term analysis looking at uh, more traditional aspects of elections, such as election administration, um, media environment, and so on. When we were initially designing the observation mission, we realized that there was uh, no way we could assess the media environment in Ukraine without uh, looking at it from the disinformation point of view because of all the challenges I described, and especially looking at Russian disinformation and how it impacts elections in Ukraine because Ukraine uh, has been the target of Russian disinformation for uh, years, and uh, these attacks are sustained, those attacks are targeted, and they are very intense. We were, of course, very careful in how we've designed the methodology of what to observe and how to observe during these elections. And we did rounds of consultations. Um, uh, We've talked to local civil society organizations, um, including Opora and Texty, who are doing groundbreaking work on countering disinformation in Ukraine. We also talked to other election stakeholders, including political parties, traditional media representatives, to understand their assessment of the problem. And as a result of these consultations, we've decided that uh, our monitoring efforts would focus on social media, and Facebook and Telegram in particular. Uh, We also looked for any mentions mentions of election interference. And for example, for the parliamentary elections, we monitored around 26 Telegram channels. And for the 2020 local elections, we monitored 50 uh, Telegram channels. Um, So what did we find? We found that political channels on Telegram were similar in focus to Russian messaging on uh, electoral candidates. They were negative on two politicians in particular, President Zelensky and former President Poroshenko. 
In our monitoring efforts, we looked for any mention of disinformation and election interference uh, in the Facebook posts. And for local elections, we've monitored around, we've collected and analyzed around 17,000 Facebook posts from the accounts of regional media outlets, mayoral candidates, and political parties. So what did we find? Messaging patterns were similar to those we saw during previous elections. And the most widespread narratives were deployed to undermine the legitimacy of the Ukrainian state and its government, weaken ties between Ukraine and partners in the West, and promote the image of Russian government. Out of all of the mm-hmm. fantastic work that, that you all have been able to accomplish, mm-hmm. what, what is your greatest outcome? What do you think you've made the biggest difference by doing this? First, the thing that I want to highlight is that disinformation is not uniquely an electoral problem, but it impacts elections a great deal. And we cannot assess uh, election integrity any longer without the disinformation lens. So disinformation should always be incorporated when assessing elections. Also, what another important takeaway is that um, it just confirmed that the work that we do is uh, very, very important and makes because it makes democracy stronger, which is the best countermeasure against disinformation. You've mentioned that malign influence can be controlled. What, what do you think the future of malign influence in Ukraine is now that it's been recognized and dealt with? I think it's complicated, but I think that the most important uh, thing is being done, which is that the problem is recognized and government is making it its uh, strategic priority to fight uh, disinformation. And so there is a lot of efforts that are being put both by the government, by the local uh, the civil society, uh, international communities also focusing on it. So I think that uh, the collaborative approach that is being taken in Ukraine to fight disinformation is uh, probably going to show uh, results. We'll share with you the three reports that we've issued uh, after each of the three elections. And it has a section, dedicated section on disinformation uh, that also includes recommendations that we've issued. uh. Okay. And our listeners will be able to find that on www.seps.org forward slash podcast. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me. If you need more information on combating digital threats, please check out the Countering Disinformation Guide. This first-of-its-kind resource was created by SEPS with funding from USAID and combines the collective expertise of those on the front lines fighting disinformation. The guide outlines how key areas of disinformation are being addressed and provides a searchable inventory of organizations working to make the digital space safe for democracy. Find it at www.seps.org forward slash podcast. One leader who understands weaknesses in the information landscape is Dr. Dan Twining, the president of the International Republican Institute. Dan has been leading the Institute's mission to advance democracy and freedom around the world since 2017. He has also served as counselor and director of the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States, as a member of the U.S. Secretary of State's policy planning staff, a foreign policy advisor to U.S. Senator John McCain, and a staffer for the U.S. Trade Representative. Dan has also taught at Georgetown University and served as a military instructor associated with the Naval Postgraduate School. And he just happens to be one of the most verbose writers I have ever come across. 
Thank you so much for being here today. Can you explain, in your opinion, why malign influence and disinformation are such threats to the health and vitality of democracy? Yes, thanks, Adrian. It's great to be with you. Uh, so look, democracy doesn't work without full and effective citizen engagement in politics and political life. And citizen engagement is complicated by misinformation and disinformation, right? We see that very much with respect to foreign authoritarians, including Russia and China, who essentially have weaponized information, conducted very sophisticated information operations, what really we should call the misinformation operations, uh, against the United States, against friends and allies, against uh, pivotal countries like Ukraine. We've seen in Ukraine, for instance, how the Kremlin has sought to paint a picture of that country as some kind of failed Nazi state when, uh, in fact, the opposite is true. Ukraine is quite a yeah. successful country coming out of a very bad period. You've listed some some really um, malign examples of, of this problem, or at least in terms of countries and nations. Where do you personally see the, the worst examples of malign influence and disinformation taking place in the world? So there are a couple answers. I mean, one, frankly, is the malign forms of uh, disinformation that Russia and China tell their own citizens, which gives them a totally warped perspective about the United States, about the quality of democracy in the world, about how we work with friends and allies to maintain peace and prosperity. So that the Chinese citizenry in particular, but also Russian citizens in some ways are captured by uh, these fake narratives that come from their autocratic governments that really heighten tensions and increase the risk of great power conflict uh, between our countries. But we've also seen uh, Russia, for instance, attack our own electoral integrity, attack electoral integrity and political processes in countries in Europe and beyond, including in Latin America. We've seen China run all sorts of, again, malign campaigns designed to distort truth and reality, including in places that many people listening might not see as highly strategic, you know, places in countries in Africa, for instance, where the Chinese run very sophisticated campaigns to squash any media conversation or political conversation in public uh, about Taiwan, about Xinjiang, about human rights abuses in Hong Kong and beyond. And so uh, many American friends and allies and citizens in the world don't have a full picture of the nature of these authoritarian states that understand that the way to protect their own autocracies is to essentially neuter the international conversation about their human rights abuses uh, through forms of information operation. It's really quite dangerous. And and one of the things that I, I think those of us who follow China in particular so closely recognize is that sometimes China doesn't look to be nefarious. Sometimes they look to be very honest brokers in some of these situations. And um, I'm just wondering, could you give us an example of, of some of the campaigns that you've seen that have been particularly damaging? Yeah, I mean, we've seen, for instance, in uh, in our own hemisphere, in a really important country like Panama, we've seen China run an influence operation with uh, boatloads of misinformation as part of it to lead Panama to break relations with Taiwan and create diplomatic ties with Beijing. The Chinese uh, came in in a very heavy way to influence Panamanian media outlets uh, in directions friendly to Beijing, but they also worked, they ran essentially a covert operation with what was uh, called a China-Panama Friendship Committee that was advising the Panamanian government 
members of this friendship committee included Chinese Panamanians. But in fact, uh, some of them uh, were working directly as part of a united front operation controlled from Beijing, controlled from China. So Panamanian citizens and the Panamanian government thought they were having a conversation with other Panamanian citizens about what was the best course to take in relations with China. And in fact, the Chinese were running a, a giant influence operation in Panama. Uh, that undermined Panamanian sovereignty and caused them to make uh, a decision that frankly was not in the best interest of, of Panama, but was in the best interest of Beijing. I'd also just like to point to a Russian example. Uh, you know, in Russia, Georgia, the country of Georgia, their democracy has been deteriorating. And what you have going on there is a set of, again, sophisticated Kremlin information operations of the kind we've also seen in Ukraine, creation of, quote, civil society organizations that are not, that are actually Kremlin operated, designed to cast doubt on the credibility of Georgia's democracy, seed divisiveness, seed polarization, create culture wars and other things. Russia uses this misinformation toolkit, not just in Georgia, not just in Ukraine, but they've used it here in the United States to try to cause our citizens to uh, disagree and divide amongst ourselves. Because guess what? If you're Vladimir Putin, you're running an autocracy, uh, you're a declining power with a lot of nuclear weapons and a lot of oil and gas. It really helps if you can set the United States and NATO allies sort of against each other internally and cause societal divisions in the West and political polarization. That takes our eye off the ball of Russian aggression and abuses uh, throughout the former Soviet Union. So it is something to be more aware of. And, and you know, in terms of what can we do, because I know you want to talk about that, we really do need a lot more citizen education, civic education, that we need private citizens in all of these countries to be able to identify true and objective news and fact and informed opinion from within their country from uh, what is very different, which is foreign misinformation that is weaponized against our own country. Nobody in the world wants their government to be in hock to a foreign government with a totally different agenda, right? Mm -hmm. uh, everybody in the world cares very much about their country's sovereignty and their security and does not want the kind of information penetration from abroad that weakens and undermines and corrodes governance in that country, again, in, in favor of the interests of some malign foreign actor. You've been talking about this for many years. This is not a 2021 new pandemic issue, right? Malign influence and disinformation has, has been around for a bit. In your opinion, is it getting better? Is it getting worse? What, what are we seeing? So I think we're at, uh, I hope, an inflection point. You know, there has been this Wild West period in social media in particular, where people have lived in these information bubbles and algorithms have enabled them to uh, not only suffer from misinformation and disinformation, but to kind of live in a world of it based on their uh, social media preferences. So I do think fundamentally uh, that we need uh, as democracies for our citizens to be more engaged in being able to sort out fact from fiction, to cast a skeptical eye on uh, alarmist assertions that may not be rooted in fact, to understand that we are not fighting wars against countries like Russia and China, but in fact, they are undertaking aggression against us in the form of seeding these information operations that are designed to weaken us. And if we can cast this partly uh, as a question of civic duty and civic patriotism to be able to, you know, snuff out misinformation, but also cast it as a national security matter uh, that we don't want 
our political choices and our political conversation in our, any of our countries to right. be uh, manipulated by malign foreign actors. That's really important to sustaining democratic health and integrity. This is such an enormous issue, particularly when we really start to look at it. What What is your recommendation for individual citizens, people who maybe aren't involved in the democracy, governance, and human rights issues? So I'd say, you know, a couple things. One is to try not to consume news or get information uh, just from one source, is try to take it in from a variety of sources, whether you're a TV person or a social media person or a print media person, you know, range widely. Uh, if you hear something alarming, about something happening in your own country, political nefariousness or uh, somebody selling out or whatever it may be is like, do your do a little bit of fact checking, right? Just don't necessarily buy the line that you see in your social media feed, but step back and try to be objective and try to be analytic. You know, I think all of us, these a lot of this, the social media algorithms and the news feeds are designed to cause a spike in our own adrenaline and make us angry and outraged. And I think sort of trying to be a little less angry and outraged and a little more thoughtful and analytic uh, to understand that public servants in our country and other democracies are usually good citizens trying to do the right thing. That uh, what we may be seeing or hearing in terms of this or that scurrilous news report that's getting us so energized may not in fact be true. In fact, it may be coming from uh, a foreign power trying to manipulate us. So just to understand that protecting our own uh, democratic integrity today requires citizens to be informed and to make smart choices, including about how they take in news and information. But it's certainly worth the time, I think. No, that's right. But if we want to protect our own democracy and our own security, we need to be alert to the fact that we are subject to these campaigns, uh, even if we can't quite see them or trace their fingerprints. I was reading through some of your testimony before the House Foreign Affairs Committee a couple of years ago. And in 2018, you said, I think it can be tempting to take refuge in a belief that democracy promotion somehow is a luxury we can't afford. Do you still feel that way? You know, more people are struggling for democratic rights and freedoms around the world than really ever since the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. We see people stepping out all over the place. We also see repressive governments cracking down in, frankly, new and sophisticated and dangerous ways. And so I'd say we have more at stake than ever. I mean, I agree with the President of the United States when he says that we're in a global struggle between democracy and autocracy. By the way, President Ronald Reagan, who founded uh, several of the institutes uh, who formed the SEPS consortium, uh, President Reagan said the same thing. And so I think it's essential for us as Americans to understand that the the health and sanctity of our democracy and our free and open way of life are tied to uh, really the fate of democracy in the world and that we have a great stake in a free and open world that remains friendly to us, to our interests, to our values. And that's why the Russians and the Chinese and the Iranians and other malign actors are trying to chip away at that free and open world. Weaken us, diminish us, cause us to doubt ourselves. And we should realize that we have something in common with almost every human being out in the world, including literally billions of people in Russia and China and Iran and elsewhere, which is this craving to be free, to live a life of dignity and individual autonomy. And so, yes, we have to stand with Democrats, small d Democrats all over the world and continue to help push forward the, the, the boundaries of freedom so that we can all live in safety and prosperity. And there's nobody who can say that better than that. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been really fantastic. Thanks, Adrian. It's great to be with you. And we just so appreciate the terrific SEPS team and the work that everybody does. So thank you. In Ecuador, the explosive growth of digital and social media has only fueled the fiery problems of disinformation. 
In 2013, former Ecuadorian President Rafael Correa passed a gag law to silence critics in the mainstream media. But that only gave rise to dozens of troll centers. To help Ecuadorians find fact-based, reliable reporting in the lead-up to this year's elections, SEP's partners worked with the government, the electoral body, civil society, and candidate stakeholders to develop programs with funding from USAID to counter disinformation and cyber attacks. The full story is online with Miguel Hernandez at www.seps.org forward slash podcast. This podcast has been produced by the Consortium for Elections and Political Process Strengthening through the Global Elections and Political Transitions Award and is made possible by the generous support of the American people through the United States Agency for International Development. Opinions expressed here are those of the host and the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of USAID or the U.S. government and is produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media. For more information on Democracy, the podcast, and to access the complete archives, please visit www.seps.org forward slash podcast. <laughs>